0: thou has washed us with thy blood what can wash away our sin nothing but the blood of jesus what can make us whole again nothing but the blood of jesus this morning we're picking up where we have left off in our study of acts we're in acts chapter 11 and the first part of acts chapter 11 is when peter comes back to Jerusalem to tell the Jerusalem Christians and leaders about how God had saved Cornelius and his household and the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. But we are going to look at a different aspect of this this morning. We're going to go down a little bit later in the chapter and pick up at verse 19. And this sermon has a very intentional purpose and its purpose is found in verse 23 of Acts 11. Verse 23, Barnabas having been sent by the Jews to check out and to investigate what was reportedly happening in Antioch, when he get there, verse 23 says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted, NIV says encouraged, which is a good translation, encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I pray that this morning as a result of our time together, as a result of our looking in God's word and listening and allowing God's Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, that we will find some gladness, that we will be able to see the visible grace of God and that God will make our hearts glad because of who he is and because of what he has done. And so I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you as your children, brothers and sisters in Christ. We come having been washed in the blood of Christ. We come having sung praises to you, our King and our Lord, our Redeemer and our Savior. We come in dependence upon you, knowing that even our salvation, our, our very lives are due to your grace and your goodness. And Father, we come to you as people... Who are surrounded in a world that is fallen, in a world that is sinful, in a world that has struggles and pain and hurt and heartache. In a world that is in many ways frustrating and makes us angry, angry, but also a world that breaks our heart. Because of the condition of the hearts of mankind, because of the condition of sin, because of the consequence of sin. And yet, Father, we see evidence of your grace around us. And I pray that today you will help us open our eyes to the reality of the many expressions of your grace. It's so easy for me to just focus upon the difficulties and the circumstances and not focus intentionally upon you and who you are and how you're moving and how you're working. And so I pray this morning, Father, for us that you will open our eyes to the visible expressions of your grace. I pray that you will encourage us and you will gladden our hearts as your people. In your name I pray. Amen. Now as Stephen read earlier this morning, uh, just to give the setting uh, that's in our text, starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, that's Antioch of Syria, by the way, just in Turkey, spoke to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking non-Jews, Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord Here's a few things that I want us to kind of answer, ask and answer as we go through our study this morning. Barnabas saw the grace of God and was glad. What did he see? How did the grace of God become visible? And the first thing that I want us to note is that the grace of God becomes visible in this case and and throughout Scripture and in our lives, becomes visible when persecution prompts preaching, when difficulties... Prompt the display of the glory of God. If you're taking notes, you can just put that down. These people suffered persecution. If there is anything that is clear from our study of Scripture, it is that, the gra- that God's grace does not spare His people from suffering in this age. But rather, He uses suffering to bring people to Himself. The Son of God Himself suffered to save people from condemnation. And now... He turns to suffering again and again for our good. James chapter 1, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because there's an outcome that God's working in us. But also in this age and in the age to come. And quite simply, guys, persecution. Persecution for the cause of Christ, which we don't experience that much in this country. But persecution is hard when you think of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan, just in the central area of Afghanistan, there's an estimated ten to 12,000 believers, many of them who are currently and actively being sought and hunted, imprisoned, beyond discriminated against, persecuted because they left Islam and named the name of Christ as their Savior and are unwilling to renounce Christ. And so they're gathering in groups and they're trying to get across the borders and they're experiencing persecution. And we've seen this in other countries. We see this in countries in Africa. We see this in other places where the name of Christ is caused for physical persecution. And we know. uh, We know from our reading. We know from the news. We know that persecution for the name of Christ is hard. But I've got to tell you, in our setting and in our context where we aren't imprisoned where we can gather together in a hotel and worship and proclaim the name of Christ, there's still suffering that takes place. Suffering apart from persecution for the name of Christ is hard. Life is hard. There's the suffering that we experience when we're sick and we get a diagnosis that we have a cancer or incurable disease or a chronic circumstance or situation. There's the grief. When we lose a loved one, as Scott and Patty experience right now, this week, there is the loss that we experience when we lose a relationship, uh, the loss that we experience when we lose a job, the suffering we experience. And I'd rather, you know how you suffer. I just don't want to list a list of suffering. But I want you to know that God does not allow us to suffer capriciously. God is not somehow cosmically abusive, taking joy when his people go through difficult times. God walks with us through this suffering, and he uses suffering for his glory. These people who were persecuted with the persecution of Stephen had to leave Jerusalem. They lost loved ones. I want you to know that Paul was a terrorist. Saul was a terrorist. And he wasn't the only one. There were those who were actively persecuting believers. Stephen was put to death. And there were others who were being imprisoned and being killed for the cause of Christ. These guys had to flee. They were refugees in every sense of the word. Sometimes when we think about the apostles being scattered, we use the word scattered and we think, oh yeah, just just sending people out. No, these people were on the run. This was not a relocation for work. This was not moving to be close to family. This was not packing up the U-Haul and heading out. A better picture would be the Christians in Syria fleeing a regime that imprisoned and killed them. Or Afghanistan, as we mentioned today, scattered and looking for places to survive. Their suffering took them to places they didn't want to go. They didn't want to leave. They didn't want to leave. It took them to places they didn't want to go. It made them leave a place where they wanted to stay. A place where they had gotten comfortable. A place where they knew the environment. A place where they worshipped and had family and friends. And they had to flee. But even in their sufferings, there were some truths that they held on to. There were some things that they were able to demonstrate as truth by how they responded in their suffering. And there were things that they were able to see and things that they were able to do. And I just want to take a few minutes and just remind us, first of all, that God is faithful. They knew. They knew by their experience and by their testimony that God had not forgotten them. He was not playing. He was not capricious. This is the God who loved them, who sent the Messiah, Jesus, His Son, to die in their place. This was the God, the Holy Spirit, who had come to live within them. And when they repented and placed their faith in Him, that had, had saved them, that had opened their eyes, that had made them new. And God was faithful to them. Even when they were faithless to the extent that they were faithless. Even when they questioned and doubted and struggled. The Bible says in First Timothy that God is faithful to us for he cannot deny himself. And so what did they know about this faithful God? I'll tell you this. that something they knew. Something you and I can know. Something we can experience that matters. And that is that God is not absent. He is present in our suffering repeatedly throughout scripture we have the promise again and again i'm sorry this keeps falling down we have a promise again and again of god's faithfulness to us that he will never leave us that he will never forsake us when he established the nation jewish nation under abraham he promised him you go i will multiply your descendants as many as the sand on the seashores and the stars in the heaven and wherever you go you go where i lead and i will be faithful i will never leave you i'll never forsake you When he called Moses, his promise to Moses was not, you'll not be on your own. I will be with you. I will not forsake you. Again and again, he promised David. He promised Solomon. He promised Israel. We see it repeated throughout the Old Testament. But that is not a promise that was just for them. It is a promise based upon the character of God, not on the recipient of the promise. God promises because of who He is that He comes to us, He saves us, He redeems us, and He will not leave us and will not forsake us. Even in verse, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5, uh, that He promises to never leave us and never forsake us. And just a a few phrases from Psalm 121 verses 3 and 4. It says, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over all Israel will neither slumber or sleep. God is not surprised by your suffering. And God's care for you does not take a nap. It doesn't rest. He's faithful with his presence. But his presence does something else. The promise of his faithfulness and the promise of his comfort does something else. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is writing. and He's writing in the midst of a very, very difficult situation. And he describes God this way when he's introducing this letter to the church at Corinth. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comforts. Now, God comforts us in our affliction with which we suffer in order that we might be used to comfort others, which is important. We'll get to that in a moment. But verse 5, he goes on to say, As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. He is present, He is comfort, but He is also strength. Jill read just a little while ago, Psalm 46.1, the promise from God, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in time of trouble. We see in Isaiah 41 that God promises us to uphold us with His strong right hand. God is present, He is comfort, He is strength. And there's something else that happens when we go through a difficult time, when we are struggling, when we are, as they were, persecuted refugees and and facing all kinds of trials. He brings peace through suffering. Jesus was preparing His disciples for His departure just before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before He went to pray and prayed, Not my will, but Thy will be done just before he was to go to the cross and to be crucified, to die, to pay the penalty for their sin. Jesus is preparing his disciples for all that they're going to face in their grief, their mourning, their confusion, their frustration. And he says to them, I have said these things to you. He's promised the Holy Spirit to them. He's given them command to serve one another. It's been a great time of teaching. But he says, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace in the world. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's what God did to the persecution of the believers in Jerusalem. He sent them sent them to different places places they would not have gone and did not want to go he made them have new experiences experiences that they didn't look for and that they didn't sign up for but God in his sovereignty brought and it was uncomfortable and it was hard and it hurt and yet they demonstrated that God was with them and one of the ways that they demonstrated this the the thing that that Barnabas saw and that made him glad was that as they went They were talking about Jesus. As they went, they proclaimed the gospel. As they went, their faithfulness to God was strengthened. As they were telling people why they were being persecuted, why they were struggling, why they were even here in the first place, and what a difference Christ had made in their life. And the result of the proclamation was that many got saved. I want you to... And there's a a great book written by a great author called Don't Waste Your Suffering. I want us to recognize that God allows suffering in our life for a reason. James chapter 1 says to strengthen us and to reveal to us more of God, that we can be joyful, we can be glad in suffering because trials produce steadfast endurance. It grows our faith. It reveals to us who God is. There are things about God you learn in persecution that you that you cannot learn any other way. They're promises of God that become expressed in reality that you'll never experience in any other way. And God draws near. God draws near. And He opens your mouth and He allows you to speak and to share with others. I, one of your uh, application questions is Philippians chapter 1. Paul's in prison, not a happy place. Paul is bound to guards. Paul has been beaten. Paul has been left for dead. Now he is imprisoned and he is glad. And the reason that he's glad is even in his imprisonment, God has given him an opportunity to talk about Jesus, to share the gospel. The great commission is as you go about, make disciples. And as you go about for whatever reason, make disciples. And so I think Barnabas would say, I I will certainly say, looking at this and looking at the testimony of so many lives, that I am glad and I see the grace of God when he uses suffering for his glory. When he uses suffering for our good. And that our suffering is not wasted. Now, not only was God's glory on display through their persecution and the gospel being proclaimed, The glory was on display by the makeup of the congregation. Uh, The way I put it in your outline, God's grace was on display. God's grace was clearly on display when Barnabas gets to Antioch and he looks around and there are all these Gentiles that are making up the church. Sure, there are Jews, but there are Gentiles there. Picking up in verse 21 again, by the way, the phrase in the outline is, God's grace is on display when division becomes unity. God's grace is on display when division becomes unity should be the second point on your outline now verse 21 and the hand of the lord was with him these were the the persecuted jews uh, jewish christians who had gone to antioch and a great number who believed turned to the lord The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose because he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, when the word came back to the Jewish Christians that something was going on in Antioch, That there was a church there and that these Christians from Cyrus and Cyrene had begun to preach the gospel to the Hellenists. And this is not Jews using the Greek language. This is non-Jewish Christians. These are Gentiles. You get that from but in the earlier in the passage when it says they went out preaching the gospel to the Jews. But there were some men of Cyrus and Cyrene who preached the gospel to the Greeks right and so when, when when Barnabas shows up, they're curious what's going on up there when Barnabas shows up, he sees a church made of wildly diverse people. Yes, there are the Jews who were saved out of the synagogue, but there are also Greeks, there are also those who are Greek slaves to the Romans it's a very diverse group, and we have talked from this pulpit many times about the racial divide that existed and what God is doing here when he's expanding the gospel. From the Jew to the Gentile, his purpose all along now being expressed in the life of the church. And so this, what was a normal division, had now become a unity. Christianity was seen even by the first Christians as a sect or a group of the Jews, a subset of the Jews. But God was not improving Or renewing his relationship with the Jews. He is doing a whole new thing in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ there is no longer Jew or Gentile. But a new thing. And they didn't even know what to call this new group. The name Christian. That phrase in verse 26. They were first called Christians at Antioch. That's a pretty big deal. You know the word Christian is only used three times in the Bible. Twice it's used by non-Christians. The first one here. The second in chapter 22 of Acts, when Paul is giving his testimony, uh, I think it's Agrippa in that passage, and, and uh, Paul is giving his, his testimony, and he says, would, would you think you can so quickly persuade me to become a Christian? And this is not a, a flattering term. It's pejorative. Now, the third time it's used is in First Peter chapter 4, when Peter is writing, and by now he's become the normal phrase, To identify this group of people. But they didn't even have a name. And so the people in Antioch made up a name. Who are those people? Well, they're not really Jews. And they're not just Gentiles. They're something... Well, they keep talking about this Christ, this Christos, this Messiah. They are Christianos. They are Christians. It's a new thing that God has created. Our hearts can be glad... Not only because God uses our suffering for His glory and persecution prompts preaching, but also because division becomes unity. God has made a brand new thing in the church that that crosses nationalistic lines, that crosses racial lines, that crosses language lines, culture lines, socioeconomic lines, crosses every line and unites our hearts together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I am glad... And I hope you are glad that God takes people who would never associate willingly and makes them family. God takes people who would never come together on their own in the circumstances of life, would never seek each other out, and by His grace, He saves them and He unites our hearts together. And division... Arbitrary lines of prejudice. Arbitrary lines of, of just simply separation. Dissolve. They go away. In the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad God doesn't waste our sufferings. I'm glad that God brings us together. I'm glad that God brings us together as a new people in him. The next paragraph here just kind of brings some things to heart that I think we ought to get here. Uh, when. When, when all this happened, verse, uh, and uh, um, Barnabas went and he saw what was going on, he encouraged them. Now, Barnabas is the encourager. His name wasn't really Barnabas. His name was Joseph, J-O-S-E-S, Joseph, if you will. And we already heard about Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, because this new church in Jerusalem made up of Jews, there were a lot of poor people there, and a lot of people who had relocated there, had come from Pentecost and stayed there. There were a lot of needs, and Barnabas had some land in Cyprus, and he went and sold it, and he took the proceeds from the sale of his land in Cyprus, and he brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet to meet the needs. And he encouraged everyone through his generosity and through his financial gift. And they started calling him Barnabas, son of encouragement, the one who encourages. Well, we see him again in Acts chapter 9 when Saul has had his conversion experience. And he goes to Damascus. He preaches. He goes out into the wilderness. He comes back and preaches, has to escape over the side of the wall in a basket. And then he makes his way to Jerusalem. And he would like to present himself to the church. And the church is like, this is Saul. No way. He doesn't get to come in here and meet with us i would imagine that they were even concealing their locations from him sure he knew their identity they weren't keeping their identity a secret but they didn't want barnabas, uh, Saul there because Saul was famous for persecuting he's a terrorist against the christians and he shows up on their door three years later with a testimony from damascus saying look i'm i'm saved and i want i want to come and be a part of it and they said no until barnabas went and Barnabas met with him and talked to him and heard his heart and he heard his testimony of what had taken place in Damascus and Barnabas represented him he stood beside him he stood up for him and he gained entrance into the fellowship as a matter of fact he, he went ahead and preached in the, in the Hellenistic synagogues and persecution again became so great that they for his good and for their good sent him to Caesarea and then on up to Tarsus and so for Tarsus ten years now ten years Saul's been waiting He's been studying. He's been preparing. He's being used by God where he is. We don't know exactly what all's taking place, but we know he's in Tarsus because when Barnabas sees what's going on and he sees all these new converts from all these different people as a result of the gospel being proclaimed by those who were suffering and they see the goodness of God, he says these folks need to be encouraged, first of all. They need to be encouraged to stand fast because... uh, Our relationship with God sometimes is is just like an infatuation. It's like when you date and you begin to fall in love and life is just just wonderful. But then there are other times in every relationship where all that infatuation goes and then it's just the grind of life, just day after day. It's the step-by-step step of life. And even in our relationship with God, if we aren't continually pursuing Him, if we aren't fulfilling that commitment, there can be times of dryness and times of seeming distance, but also because of the circumstances that we face, there can be those struggles. And Paul, Barnabas is encouraging them, stay steady, don't quit, don't stop, be faithful. He encourages them, But he also knows they need to be taught. So what is one of the ways that you encourage people? You tell them the truth. You tell them the truth about God. You tell them the truth about God's word. About who God is and what God does. It's important that we recognize that one of the signs of the grace of God was not only Barnabas going and finding Saul. Who had been now 10 years from his call in Tarsus. Barnabas leaves them. He goes. He leaves Antioch of Syria. He goes to Tarsus to find Saul. And he picks him up. Why Why? Why do you think Saul came to mind? Because now we've got Jews, we've got Gentiles, and we've got Romans all in this church. And Saul was a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, taught at the feet of Gamaliel who came to Christ. Saul was Very knowledgeable of Greek language and Greek culture and the ways of the Gentiles. Saul was a Roman citizen by birth. Saul was a great fit for this congregation and God had a role for him here. And Barnabas obediently went and found him and brought him back. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. The grace of God was on display as the new converts, these converts, were taught the Word of God. I would imagine, and as you can imagine, that there was this hunger, there was this thirst on behalf of these people who had been introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ to learn, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted to be not, not simply equipped for service, they wanted to know, now that I'm a follower of Christ, what does Christ say, what do I follow? What do I do? And Barnabas, excited to encourage them with the word of God, went and got Saul. And I I would imagine Saul was a very good teacher, having the training that he had, the experience that he had. And they just began to teach. Now, it does not overtly say in this text what they taught, but I can tell you what they taught. They taught the word of God. They taught the word of God. They taught the Old Testament that they had in hand. And they taught the words of Christ, just like we are commanded to do in the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. It's an important task. And they were exhorted, like Paul exhorted Timothy later, to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. They received... They they were in many ways like the Bereans when Paul, later on another missionary journey, went from Thessalonica to Berea, and he talked to the Jews in the synagogue first. And here's how they are described. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. And as a result of their study, many of them believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So they were hungry. For the Word of God. Can I tell you one of the many expressions of the grace of God that God gives to us? Not only in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in the ways that He forgives us and washes us with His blood, not only in the way that that He walks with us and that He comforts us and that He's our peace and our presence, He speaks. Listen, God speaks. God speaks today. He has spoken. He has preserved his word. His living Holy Spirit indwells us. And he speaks today. Now many of us know this. I I can see it frankly in some of your Facebook and Instagram posts. I can see it in some of the testimonies that we have outside in the hallways. And some of the conversations that we have as we kind of go through life together. And I hear testimony after testimony and I can share testimony after testimony where I was seeking for something or searching for something or questioning something and God would bring a scripture to mine or God would bring someone in my life or God would have someone send me an email or something that shared with me the truth that immediately applied. There have been times in your life, as I'm sure there are times in my life, when we struggled, we wanted to know truth, or we wanted to know what to do, or we, we we wanted something, some sort of intervention, some sort of help. And all of a sudden, God, through His Word, just breaks through. And His Holy Spirit illuminates, turns the light on. And we get this sense of the presence and the comfort of God. He's promised it, but we God can taste it and touch it and feel it. As we spend time in his word. I will tell you that there is a converse to that. There are many people who name the name of Christ. And never open the scripture. There are many people who name the name of Christ. And never seek God. In the words of his scripture. I have talked to many many people. Good people. Faithful people. Religious people. Who are struggling And struggling and struggling and all of life is simply defined as a struggle. And the reason that there's not gladness in their heart is they don't listen. They don't go to God and communicate with God. They don't open their hearts to God and open the scriptures and open their minds and say, God, teach me and show me. I love Moses' heart. Moses, one of my heroes in the Old Testament, was given an impossible task. And God said, don't worry, I'm with you. I got you, it's my power. Don't worry, I'll walk with you through this. And he gave him a a great task to accomplish, but Moses got frustrated with the task and he got frustrated with himself and God saw the sin of his people and God took him up to Mount Sinai and God said, listen, your people are hard-hearted and they're stiff-necked and so I'm going to send an angel, a surrogate, to represent me as you travel across the wilderness. And Moses, I can just imagine the panic. That he had, oh no, I don't even want to go with an angel. I want you to go. And he cries out to God and says, if you don't go, I'm not going. I need you. I need your power and your presence and your strength. I can't make it today without you. Much less make it to the task that you've called me. Much less be used for your glory. I can't do life for your glory without you. And that needs to be the cry of our heart. But when you cry, what happens? God speaks. And you open the word of God and you ask God through his Holy Spirit to bring the word to life so that his eternal word, his logos, becomes Rima, becomes God's word for you today and he speaks into your heart and you begin to know him and to know him more i love the psalmist heart in psalm 119 verses 15 and 16 he talks about the discipline that is required to know god he says i will meditate on your precepts and he doesn't mean i'll think about it when i get around to it He means I'll take your word and I will set my mind on it and I will rehearse it and I will memorize it and I will think upon it and I will repeat it and I will write it on a card and stick it on my review mirror in my house and my refrigerator and my bathroom mirror. I will write it and I will underline it and I will read it again today and tomorrow and this afternoon. I will think it over and I will pray it back to you. And I will ask you to make it real to me. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. How many many of us can say that's our testimony? I will delight in your statutes. Why? I will not forget your word. Let me tell you what happens when you get in the word of God. you know what you see when you get in the word of God? You see God You see God revealing himself to you, revealing his character to you, re- revealing his truth to you. I will fix my eyes on your ways when you when you study the word of God. You will see the hand of God. So we study the word of God that we can know him. I'm glad. I'm glad that God turns persecution into preaching and lost people being saved. I'm glad I'm glad that God never leaves us and never forsakes us. I'm glad. I'm glad that we can see the grace of God in so many ways. But I am really glad that God has spoken and that God still speaks and he speaks to me today. Now the last part of this passage, and we'll cover this very, very quickly. The prophet came, several prophets from Jerusalem came, one of them named Agabus said, in the days of Claudius there's going to be a famine throughout the land people are going to be suffering the christians are going to be suffering and what did these this this group of christians in antioch do what what was the next sign of the grace of god in their life they took an offering (laughs) what did they do they took an offering each one determined to give as he was able to meet the needs of the saints in our leadership team, we've been talking about what are the things that characterize our congregation? What are the things that should characterize our congregation? And I will tell you that generosity keeps coming up in those conversations. As a characteristic, both realized and aspirational. I believe that we are a generous congregation. I really believe we're a generous congregation. But I want to tell you something. You can't out-give God you can't. You are. You are reflecting the character of Christ in your life when you turn your attention off yourself and you turn it to the needs of others. In this context, to the needs of other Christians, which we see repeatedly, they opened their hearts, and because they opened their hearts, they opened their wallets, if you will, and the grace of God was evident because generosity was expressed that's the fourth point on your outline if you're following the grace of God was present because generosity was expressed they took up an offering for the Christians in Jerusalem they met one another's needs now we started this by saying how can you be glad in the midst of persecution you can be glad because God doesn't waste your suffering he uses it for your good and for his glory How can you be glad when you see the grace of God? You can be glad that the grace of God unites you with other people, people who are different from you, people who are the same as you. God doesn't allow you to stay isolated. In Christ, you have friends. In Christ, you have family. In Christ, you have brothers and sisters. How do you see the grace of God? You see the grace of God in listening to the voice of God. As you study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. As you meditate upon the word of God and you fix your eyes upon His way, you see the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God? Being the recipient of the grace of God, you're gracious toward other people. I am a southerner. Now, I know that... Not everybody in this room is, and certainly, probably not everybody in the in the sound of our voices. And I do not know life much beyond the South, apart from what I read and brief trips elsewhere. I have been to other countries, and I've been to other country-like places, such as New York and places like that. Um, I do know that there is a characteristic from in this part of the world that, that, that I was just raised with many of you were raised with and it is that we tend to be socially nice now that might be changing I don't know but where I come from we still wave at people we don't know and we still say typically yes ma'am and yes sir even adult to adult junior to senior we typically smile, we typically greet each other well, and we have many small expressions of what has been deemed southern hospitality. You guys know what that means, right? It, it's, more than, it, it's more than fried chicken, all right? Southern hospitality is showing kindness to one another. And there's a picture of grace, I think, that goes along with that. We go through life, and life is hard. And our tendency is to isolate and to close the doors. Our tendency is to practice some form of escapism. We get into a movie or we get into a book or we get into a hobby or we get into something. Rather than deal with the pressures of life. And it may be work, just busyness and all of the things that go along with that. And as Christians we have this wonderful unique privilege. To express God's grace, God's generosity to us, to one another. And to do it consistently and to do it graciously as a testimony of His grace to us. Now this is not about being from the South. That was just an illustration. Here's the point. As Christians, we are to love one another and to care for one another. As a defining characteristic of what it means to be Christ. Both for his glory. For the good of the congregation. But also as a testimony. To those outside of the grace of Christ. And we get to be gracious to them as well. Isn't God good? Have you seen the grace of God? We see it there. We see it in persecution being used for God's glory. By the gospel being presented and many becoming saved. God reached a city because of the suffering of a few. We see it in the word of God becoming alive to these people. In the, We see it in the generosity that was expressed. And I would ask that God open our eyes to the grace of God that we see around us. Today, in our context and in our circumstance. And that be, like Barnabas was to Paul, an encouragement. Like how God encouraged Barnabas. Barnabas went to encourage the church at Antioch, and Barnabas was the one who was made glad. And that the song of our heart may be, He has made me glad. Our God saves. We get to be participants and celebrants in that. Father, thank you. Thank you that you extend your grace to us, that you show forth your grace all around us. I pray, Father, that you will open our eyes and in our hearts so that even in the midst of persecution, the gospel is proclaimed. I pray that you will help us to open our eyes and our hearts so that even when there are circumstances that have historically been divisive, there is unity in the knitting of our hearts together as one family, one faith, one brotherhood under one Christ and dwell with one Holy Spirit with one Father. Father, I pray that you'll open our minds and our hearts and our hunger to listen to you so that in your word as a discipline and as work and as effort the expression and the consequence of that is that we rightly handle the word of God and you open our eyes and we know you We see you clearer than we've ever seen you before. And Father, I pray that you'll just continue to display that in us as you open our hearts to generosity, as a display of your generosity to us. We love you and we trust you to do so. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together.